When it comes to talking about this next episode on the Liku Liku podcast, it reminds me of that one song from the 90s. It's no surprise to me, I am my own worst enemy. Cause every now and then I kick the living shit out of me. The smoke alarm is going off and there's a cigarette still burning. Please tell me why. My car is in the front yard and I'm sleeping with my clothes on. Okay, okay. I think you know which song am I singing about just by that tone. That's My Own Worst Enemy by the band Lit. And can you relate? Have you ever felt that you were your own worst enemy? I have. And oh, so many times. And yet, even with this awareness, I would repeat doing things that I would later hate myself for. Maybe you have a different pattern, but I think we all have them. And what's important is to realize that this way, this doesn't have to be where the story ends. It really is just the beginning. And we also need to pay attention to the real reason why we somehow can't seem to be able to change those patterns just by thinking and talking. Besides, when it comes to pain and health, there is no separation between the body and the mind, right? This is what we discuss and more on today's episode of the Liku Liku podcast. Welcome to the Liku Liku podcast. It ain't funny after all. It is the place where we discuss the deeper, less comfortable experience of being human. And we relate with one another to understand how to better live in a world that has stopped making sense. Hi and hello everyone. Welcome to another episode of Reality Bites with Emidi in collaboration with the Liku Liku podcast. This is your co-host Amy Dangin and I co-host the show with none other than Alan Karu and Devi Kusardi. Hi Amy. Hello. Hi everyone. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, thank you for the support. This In this episode, we are going to talk about solutions for pain part three. Yes, meaning that we've had about two episodes talking about solutions for pain And just a brief recap, we talked about the way we eat as solutions for pain, um, meaning we talked about our diet. We also talked about, um, we, we also talked about how we sense, right? How we sense and uh, cover, which covered things like how the typical or normal massage is different from more, uh, intuitive or more um, connected or conscious touch therapy. We also talked about how we move, um, the kind of therapy, the kind of approaches or measures that can help us um, deal with pain better in our life. We also talked a little bit about trauma in that episode, in the episode of movement, and I think that is a nice way to segue into what we are going to talk about in this episode, uh, Solutions for Pain Part 3, 
because we are going to talk about psychotherapy in a way looking at how we think, uh, the way we think and how that affects the way we process emotionally and mentally and how that affects our way of coping with pain, our way of dealing with pain. So with the intro out of the way, where do we start? Maybe it's good to remind ourselves that uh, what we said um, before we started the solutions, that pain is an emotion, right? Mm. Because it's a few episodes back, so people might not have listened. So if emotion is a pain, it means that it gives us um, ways to deal with it that are not just, you know, taking pills or getting a surgery or this kind of regular solutions that you would normally get in a physician's office, right? Or in a hospital mm. or something like that. And as a matter of fact, you know, psychotherapy and usually CBT, right? Cognitive behavioral therapy is one of the recommended uh, treatments for, for pain and the chronic kind. But what we will explain throughout this episode is why we think that this is a bit limiting. Mm. And, and how, in a way, psychotherapy, right, is not just how we think. It's how we feel and think, mm. sort of, right? Because emotion is also part of what gets us to not be as mentally strong as what we could be. Because when we don't know how to regulate them very well, it can cause a lot of havoc in our life and leave us feeling that this is not the experience of life that we really like to have. Hmm. Right. Yeah. And when we talk about psychotherapy, what would be some of the modalities that we are talking about? What is considered as psychotherapy? It's a very good question, actually. Um, when I was writing some kind of thesis or, or document for my training in psychotherapy, I did some research and I found that the latest information that was out there, there was probably more than a thousand types of named psychotherapies. Mm. So even wow. if we just back to back try to name them very, very fast mm -hmm. in some kind of game, we probably would need more than an episode, <laughs> right? Which makes it really scary and, and strange. But what, what people think being psychotherapy is usually they think about talk therapy. Mm, you sit yeah, down, yeah. right, or, or counseling, Counseling. Right, counseling. It's like, yeah, yeah, I need counseling because I don't have anyone to talk to. Uh, and that can be useful, but it's also um, a little bit limiting because we're talking about emotions, right? And that's also one of the most common belief, especially in, a, in, a, in communities where mental health awareness is still not that talked about or openly talked about, is that you're depressed or you're stressed out, you have mental health issues, um, counseling. Like that's the only thing that is available for us to deal with our pain. Yeah. Um, no, we're not going to make friends again by saying some of the things that we say. <laughs> Unpopular but I think opinion. <laughs> it just needs to be said so that people know. From It's from the scope of people having more options than what they're normally given. That's mm. really the intent of what this is. Mm -hmm. And if we don't know that something exists, we're not going to be able to ask for it or to wrap our heads around it. You know, what do I want for my own personal treatment of my experience of pain day in, day out? 
Mm. And so I we talked about trauma last time, right? And there's mm. many, many ways that we could be exposed to trauma. Like a traumatic experience is more something that I would bring to to mind rather than, you know, some car accident or or some, you know, childhood abuse or something like that. Like even just some neglect or not getting the kind of uh, attention that we need when we're small, mm. you know, that, that can be enough to trigger something that doesn't look huge, but it could be very deep. The lack of simple acknowledgements from parents normally. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. It can take mm. so many different forms, or it could also be an experience of an acute pain event that was very mm. hard to tolerate. And mm. then we then develop something as a result of that that becomes uh, chronic, right? And CBT, when when you're actually talking about trauma, has been studied a lot with the veteran affairs in the US. And unfortunately, CBT is still pushed as being the, 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 the mainstay of treatment, but it has a pretty poor track record because a lot of it is based on exposure or talking to your brain. But first, if you are going to get a lot of exposure, if you've had a horrendous event happen to you, you don't want to relive it over and over again. Like, no one wants to do that, right? That's why there's a lot of dropout. And also, one of the things is, if you didn't really have a caregiver that was very attuned to you and you kind of feel a little bit empty or, you know, you sometimes wonder what it's like to feel safe or to feel loved or to yeah, have an, an attachment, yeah, 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 a connection to an adult that was able to understand who you were and actually really cared, mm. right? Then CBT is going to be tricky because you're, you're basically working with a script. And script mm. is not good for attunement because you, we need to be able to respond as a therapist to what the person is displaying in that moment. Not just say, well, I know you're feeling frustrated right now, but I do have a script to follow. So it would be good if you could contain it so we could move along. <laughs> because some of these programs, right, they, they have been pushed by insurance uh, companies. Because insurance, that's just the way they work. They like to know how many sessions it's going to take. Mm. When it comes to subtle things like traumatic experiences and, and complex trauma or developmental or attachment trauma, you just cannot tell how long it's going to take, mm. right? And therefore, a script will not work. And we need, to, we need to drop that idea and just show up the way that the person needs us. I, I like to usually say that ideally, in therapy, you need to reinvent therapy with every single person that shows up at your door. There are some principles, but we need to be able to say, okay, what I'm doing right now doesn't work. Let's shift. Mm. Different things work for different people. Right? Wouldn't you want to have something that is tailor-made instead of, you know, going to Walmart and <laughs> getting a, a suit that doesn't fit your size because you happen to be a little bit tighter around the shoulders or something mm -hmm. like that, but you need it to be looser around the waist? Mm. Yeah. So we need yeah. custom approaches, especially when we talk about trauma and things like that. Now, given that talk therapy and CBT specifically, um, as well as pharmacology are being pushed consistently for any kind of mental health issue you could think of, yeah. 
what we're saying here could be a hard pill to swallow. Pun non intended. <laughs> but the problem is more in the fact that trauma is not something that is being taught to most mental health workers. Mm. And if and when it is, it is not done in a way that they can actually use with clients. A lot of the time, the training is something that mental health professionals take and finance themselves without any help from their employers. Just after seeing how frequently their patients have been exposed to traumatic experiences... Yeah. And there's a lot of tangible proof in the scientific literature um, in the form of brain scans that the areas of the brain that are required for behavior change and thinking in a cognitive way are dramatically impacted by trauma. Yeah. This means that CBT is like trying to talk sense into a person who's in a survival mode, mm. me versus them kind of thing. And, and they're not able to process and learn from new experiences. So if they are able to somehow be composed in the office, they won't be the next time that they are in trauma time because the memories that activate are outside of time and away from the reach of the typical CBT practitioner's toolbox. Yeah. Last thing I'll say, which could be maybe the most meaningful, comes from the book The Body Keeps the Score. Mm. So after 9-11 in New York, a committee was formed to discuss what sort of mental health support was going to be offered to the traumatized population. Mm. And because of political reasons, CBT and psychoanalysis were chosen. Do you know how many of the thousands and thousands of people that witnessed the horrible event showed up? None. That's right. Zero. Wow. People did not want to get CBT and psychoanalysis after a trauma. Yeah. And do, do you know what they did for themselves instead? The very things we've been saying in this series of episodes. Yoga, which has been proven to be more effective than CBT in scientific studies. Mm -hmm. uh, massages and body work, as well as EMDR, which we'll mention later, and acupuncture. Mm. So that's it. We've said it. <laughs> Some people are going to be slightly uh, frustrated and annoyed, but that's just the way it is. So we're, yeah, yeah. we're trying to give options, right? Mm. So where do we move from here? I'm just going to quote Carl Jung, right? Jungian psychology. Um, he more or less, not exactly in this way, said, until you make your unconscious conscious, it will direct you and you will call it fate. Mm -hmm. He probably just didn't say it exactly like that, but even if it wasn't him that said it, it it's for me, it's still a very powerful uh, quote because what we've been saying all along is that we have an autopilot and we're not aware of it. So we go around thinking that we're consciously doing what we do in our life, but actually that's only true for 5% of the time, right? Yeah. And so we need to be aware of the patterns that we tend to follow. And if we look at our whole life, especially if we are like around midlife and we have enough data, right? We will start to see that maybe in certain situations, we tend to always react more or less the same way. <laughs> But usually people from the outside see that more than we actually do, right? And sometimes they point it out to us and it kind of like annoys us because We don't usually like to be pointed out things that we supposedly should know about ourselves, right? Mm. 
Mm. And that's in a way that's why CBT doesn't work because it's like, hey, how about we drop that behavior that seems to put you in harm's way? And replace it with a new one. Yeah, I mean... Well, that, if it were that easy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it tends... It, it doesn't build connection, right? Because it's mm. like, yeah, well, you think I don't know. Do you think I don't want it? You know, if it was as simple as just, yeah, oh, okay, well, if we just need to stop eating snacks at night, right? But there's an emotional reason why we yeah. actually eat snacks at night. And, and that needs to be acknowledged and dealt with, right? Yeah. So some forms of CBT may do that and whatnot. I'm just talking about like vanilla, very basic CBT that follows a script and basically tries to tackle your behaviors, right? So there are such uh, patterns that I think is useful to, to mention. Like, for example, in schema therapy, which is ironically a, a third wave type of cognitive behavioral therapy, there are things like abandonment, emotional inhibition, in which, you know, some people have really hard time trying to show their feelings, right? Or discussing them or just bringing them up. Like mm-hmm. they, they could have um, a very bland face, not very expressive, you know? That happens. We have seen people like that. Yeah, people yeah. who have trust issues with others, like they'll always be doubting people's agendas intentions, and intentions yeah. and interests, mm-hmm. of course. Failure to achieve in which no matter how much achievement we have, we just think that we're failing it, right? Not good enough. Mm. Or we'll, we're self-punitive. We, tell, we tend to self-blame, right? Mm. In our negative self-talk. Or we're, mm. we're pessimistic and we worry a lot, right? Those are kinds of patterns that we can have. And I think it's useful to to know them, but it's not enough, right? And what... What's the missing part sometimes in these kinds of uh, therapies is that there's a splinter, a wood splinter or a shard of glass that's somewhere in that wound that stops it from healing. Mm. And what happens is that we end up being triggered by things that logically we know we shouldn't be triggered, Mm. but we still do, right? Yeah, yeah. And... (laughs) That reminds me of a very recent encounter or exchange I had with a close, with a family member. And I've always been aware of how different we are in terms of the way we see things. So we have been into many arguments, um, some of them explosive. A lot of them made me learn my lesson to not be as fully invested when it comes to exchanging or having a conversation with her. I mean, I've known this for, what, more than five years now, right? Since the last time I said to myself, you know this, you you should know how to gauge yourself emotionally already with this person. You know how it ends up most of the time. And it wasn't until very recent that I realized, like, oh my God, how hard is it to change a thought pattern or a, a pattern of behavior? Because... I had this exchange with her and I felt offended. I felt I was not listened to and she was talking over me and I felt internally um, hurt, but I wasn't able to express that. So I just shut myself down. And I remember walking into my space, just trying to find peace saying, you know this, I was so upset with myself. You know this, you should have known better, but you went in there anyway with the same Uh, tools with the same uh, guard down you know so 
it's funny. I it made me realize how I thought I have the capability now or the knowledge now to handle these kind of conflicts, internal or external, uh, in a much more better way. In ways that I don't get so emotionally involved, so offended. But it turns out that even after years of um, work on being more aware of these things, I still get triggered, and I still end up responding in the same pattern. It's that shard, right? Yeah. It's that wood splinter. You know, it takes work to be able to 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 remove it, but it's worth doing because otherwise, we the same thing is going to happen forever and ever, right? And who wants that? Mm. So, like, yeah. would you say would you say that the shards or that wood splinter is kind of like in some unresolved uh, conflicts between me, me and her, something that's not addressed between us, or could that thing be my own personal shard, my own personal splinter? That I've yet to resolve. Okay, so we're doing therapy think, now. <laughs> <laughs> I think it could be both, right? Or more. It could be both. Mm. That is, it's your own shard that you've had since childhood, mm. since maybe even before you were born. Maybe mm. it was something that you inherited. <laughs> mm. and, yeah, um, I asked that for the benefit of our audience that maybe... Yeah. What are these yeah. people talking and about? When I say inherited, maybe, you know, maybe your elders, you know, could be your mom or your dad or somebody that's older than you that's in your family that did not resolve it, right? Mm. And so when they raise you, they pass it down to you and it becomes yours. Uh, but then also um, it's the day-to-day, -day, right? That when, you, when you're exposed to this person, this family member or sibling, mm. right? So it can be this day-to-day -day exposure that you've been having with this person for what, for many, many years now, if it's a yeah, close family yeah. member. So yeah. it just keeps repeating over and over again. So, yeah. So I think Alan can yeah. uh, delve deeper into this, but mm. yeah, it's always well, I mean, both. We are on air, so I'm, we're not, not going to go like all that deep inside it, but just it's useful to talk about this. So thanks, Amy, for bringing it up. I would say the same thing that I always say, hurt people, hurt people, right? Like mm -hmm. if you have two people walking around with a wound that has a shard or a sprinter is inside it, you get triggered without knowing it. And then the second thing that we, we know when we are hurt, we're going to find a place to actually press on the other person that's going to be painful because that's going to protect us. When they're worrying about their pain, right, then they're not going to be trying to harm us. Or that's the primitive way of thinking, because at that moment, the adult, highly evolved brain is not online, right? And that's why I insisted on talking about trauma in the previous uh, episode. So it's that shard, and we need to address it. But I want to get us away from blame and, and shame because it's nobody's fault that you have a shard. You know, our parents are usually wonderful people who try their best, but they still can't do it as right as it would be needed for us. And, and thus, we just walk in life with a little bit of wounding going around. But it's not about blaming them. In some cases, they probably could be made accountable for some of the things that they do, right? But it's more useful to stop thinking about blaming and just thinking about dissolving this problem, just walking away 
and 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 looking at it from a broader perspective what can we mm. do right mm. and um if we push it right like these patterns that we have just now you were saying you know oh, i was telling myself how i would have liked to react differently right and then this is what we you know for example that could be a schema of self-punitiveness mm -hmm. because that may just have been a pattern that adults have been showing when a conflict occurs and it's not resolved properly then there will be self-blame and then we just kind of learn from it even from an age where we don't even have words for it mm. because when we're small we just copy and mimic right yeah and so if we take those patterns to a another like a stage beyond they can even um, have an image in our mind they actually have a body a shape an age right they're parts of us and like for example that self-punitive part of ourself could just be an angry um, teenager or a blaming overreactive adult, those kinds of things. And, and what can happen is that if we don't accept that those things are parts of us, we will isolate it. And then what happens is we can start to be fragmented in the way that we see ourselves, mm. right? Fragment, shard, those things are kind of connected. And we need to have more integration that this is okay, that those parts are actually useful. But instead, if we're not really aware that this process is happening, you could have opposing forces inside of you where you just have the anger that you wanted to be heard, but were not, and you want to express as anger, but you can't because the environment is dangerous for you to express that anger. So you will suppress it with equal amount of force. And now inside of you, you have those two forces which are kind of okay, right? If they're not that strong, those forces, because you want to have a balance inside of you. We have a part of ourselves that is telling us that it's not okay to swear at people. You have that age when you're a kid that you just want to say pee, poo, and whatever upsets the adults around, and you're developing that part of yourself. And then after that, you kind of develop a frontal lobe, you know, that says like, ah, oh, maybe it's okay to not say it also, <laughs> you know? makes everybody's life easier. Mm. But when we're in that emotional moment, we don't necessarily have those things. And then later we can try to suppress those things and we have too much energy being spent on two opposing forces. Mm. And when you actually take the context of chronic pain, you can start to realize how it starts to make sense because when you think about it, a lot of the ways in which chronic pain can exist that we've talked about, like in lower back pain, in headaches and migraines, in neck pain, in um, fibromyalgia especially. You know, sometimes you can even put like uh, some rheumatoid kind of things like uh, arthritis or what is it again? Chronic fatigue syndrome, right? Almost always there is a component of fatigue. Mm which is you burn your energy and you're left with nothing. Why? Because internally there's a, a fight that is going on to repress stuff continuously. And at the end of the day, you have no energy for anything else. Mm. But all of it is unconscious. Yeah. So just to put things in context again, why is it that I'm talking about this, right? I really want to drive it home so that it makes sense. But a simple statistic, 77% of a survey of almost 5,000 women with fibromyalgia had a feeling of injustice. Injustice is oppression to which you cannot oppose your will. 
you cannot have your way, you cannot be heard, you cannot express, right? So it's oppression, it's pressure, which requires resistance. And we talk about resistance and tension in the body, mm. always, because it is kind of the, the, the root cause of all of these symptoms that we're seeing in the case that there is no identifiable structural cause, right? Mm. So that's, wow. that's very important. And between 40 to 50, maybe more percent of people who have those conditions will actually have a connection with trauma. And it could be more than that because how often are we going to feel safe disclosing that we have had something terrible happen to us when we were a child? Mm-hmm. So it's likely that we're, we are going to underplay it rather than just, you know, fully display it. Yeah. For the sake of the audience, maybe who were just listening listening in and don't really know what is um, fibromyalgia, you know, it's basically people have all kinds of symptoms, usually like fatigue, feeling really tired, you can't sleep properly, you have headaches all the time, you're very sensitive, you know, sometimes even when people touch you, Very gently, you go like, ouch, you know, everything, your whole body is in pain, your muscle gets into cramps easily, you feel twitchy, and you're also generally, your behavior, sometimes you get jumpy, you're just like, hi, me, yes, you know, so all of these things, it's just a combination of different things. So fibromyalgia, that's what it is. Hmm. Yeah, and we, we're, we're actually taking a training with uh, Bessel van der Kolk also, which is an amazing experience. And he happens to be connected with very high up people that he meets at dinners and stuff like that. And he was saying that he once met the head of rheumatology at the National Institute of, of Health, which is as high as it gets, right? And fibromyalgia falls under rheumatology. And what he was saying is, oh, no, fibromyalgia, that's just a disease for crocs. We don't take it seriously. Ouch. Mm. Mm. I mean, it's known in the ICD-11, the internal International Classification of Disease. It's an actual disease. But the people who are responsible for that diagnosis actually don't take it seriously. Can, can you see how that relates with people feeling injustice? Mm. Yeah, yeah. They're not heard. Yeah. Everybody unheard. thinks they're just walking around faking their life. Yeah, yeah. Unheard, unseen, right? That's a lot of the general population. Yeah. That's what we are feeling today. Yeah. So that's all fine, Alan. Right. You convinced me. I have some patterns. There are some things that need to be worked with. Uh, I also know that CBT might not be the best way to do that because I also have other parts, you know, with attunement and whatnot, that having a standard treatment might not really be the best I can use, right? So what do we do? Well, I highly encourage you to to listen to the other episodes, but throughout we're saying one thing, but using different modalities, right? Um, Movement could come under psychotherapy, Right, expressive arts therapy that we're going to be talking next time could also come un- under that, or a psychotherapy mm-hmm. could go under that. All that. What's important is we use mixed approaches because one thing is never going to do it for everyone. It doesn't work that way. Mm. And whatever is the approach that we use, we always have to bear in mind that there's a body there that we need to take care of. So we need to use somatic approaches. 
So there are a number of um, uh, different modalities or, or types of techniques that you can use to help with chronic pain. So one of them would be hypnosis because hypnosis takes you to a different uh, state of consciousness or mind, right? In which you're able to observe yourself. And I'm going to extend that to other things that are related to yoga as well. So if you do a, a dharana or a meditation, or if you do guided imagery in a case where somebody's guiding you, it's there's some a lot of overlap between hypnosis or uh, hypnotherapy and unguided imagery and those other more um, yogic and ancient practices or yoga nidra as well, right? It's an observation of yourself from the outside in which you can see what is difficult to bear when you're in your body, right? I think Eckhart Tolle is saying, watch the thinker. So you're watching who's having your thoughts, and but you are not them, that mm. sort of thing. But in our case, we focus more on the body, right? So watching the body, how the body reacts, what it feels and, and all this, but watching it from the outside. I'm going for a lot of shortcuts here, right? Because we don't have yeah. enough time for all this. But it could be very powerful. But the problem with hypnosis is statistically, it doesn't work on everyone. It can be extremely powerful in 10% of people where they would do things that you wouldn't even believe. They have actually hypnotized people into thinking that they were getting burnt on their skin. And those people actually developed those blisters. Wow. The blisters showed on the body because they were under hypnosis thinking that they are being burnt. Wow. So that's how crazy it can be, right? And you also have uh, the other 10% which are completely immune to it. Nothing will work. It will not happen. And most of us are in between those 10 and 10%. And it could be anything, right? But the rule of thumb that I have heard um, one journalist, Eric Vance, who has been studying it and wrote a book, 30%, about 30% is going to be effective. And apparently we can't change that. We are the way we are and it's either going to work or not. So no side effects, can try it, doesn't, doesn't hurt, right? Mm. Other aspects of treatment that we could use are things like EMDR, uh, so eye movement, desensitization, and reprocessing, which is a trauma-focused kind of treatment, which we actually use when it's useful. Not always, right? Uh, there's also reattach, which is a method that comes from uh, Paula Bartholomew's Wehrkamp from uh, Netherlands. We were very fond of it because it's somatic. It uses you know, uh, releasing of oxytocin and bonding and stuff like that. And a method that's very gentle. Like it's really non-invasive. It feels a bit strange, but not that difficult and challenging, right? Which is some, sometimes what we need. And it works across a whole bunch of different um, conditions. So that's very useful. And there's also tapping, right? Which use acupressure points, but it also gets us to change our thinking while we're tapping certain points that activate our energy body and also the, the, the different blockages that we have in our body that can link to blockages in our thinking. Mm. And it's something right? easy that a lot of people can learn within a short time, right? That they can actually also practice on themselves. Absolutely. Mm. So we're going to talk a little bit about that in the three 
solution section. But what I might want to say, right, is that all of these still have need to have some kind of container in which you have an interpersonal connection with somebody. Yeah. I would love it if we could heal by ourselves. Most of the time we do. But when we have we get to a certain level of challenges, right? Including things like chronic pain, it can really be a game changer to have somebody else because if we have a pattern in which we were triggered by a caregiver that wasn't really responsive as much, we need to kind of do something that we call reparenting, mm. which is to reparent ourselves and to reattune to the possibility of somebody responding to us. And that's why, again, mm. CBT might not be able to do that. You're going to have some amazing people who just by trying to follow CBT will actually deliver those things to you without even knowing that they're doing it or whatever, right? But that's going to be rare. So it's better if you think, you know, you don't know if you have trauma or whatever, you might as well just take a principle of precaution and just pretend that you do just so in case you don't start triggering that splinter or that chart, right? And one thing that people don't realize, and even some therapists, sad to say, are not realizing, maybe because lack of training or exposure or whatever, the interpersonal relationship and the alliance that you have with a therapist is actually much more powerful to your healing than the method is. Mm. Last time I checked the stats, right, it was about four times as powerful. Wow. So you can use a wide range of different tools to get to where you need. And some people might respond better to EMDR, mm. right, which I will gladly do if the person's responsive to it. But there are some cases in which, like, not going to fly. And I will be responding to the person and, and attune and just say, okay, let's try something else. Because that's more important. Keeping that, that connection, that relationship is going to be more important for the healing. But a lot of standardized therapy doesn't take that into consideration. And that's why in a lot of cases it doesn't work. Hmm. Yeah. And, and, and it's funny how they don't see it that way because I, re I remember from the training, trauma training that we had, it's more important to create that sense of safety. That's the most important part. Absolutely. Because because that's what's missing. That was what was missing from when we developed that trauma or traumatic experience. And that's what's missing yeah. in a lot of our current um, context of healthcare, right? If you go to a mm. mainstream, you know, medical provider, medical doctor, uh, most of the time. That sense of being genuinely cared mm. for, like feeling safe. How can you how can you feel safe when there's lack of that um, connection? Yeah, or right? awareness. Yeah. A lot of the health professionals may not even be aware how necessary that is and how yeah, important yeah. that is. Right? Yeah. Yeah. In some in some cases, though, not because of the training, but just because some people are naturally caring, you will end up having a doctor or a nurse. That is just like that, mm. but it won't be because of their training. And you might feel that sometimes you enter a space with somebody and you just feel like you can relax for the first time and you don't know why. Mm. Yeah. Right? But it won't be because of the training. It'll be just because that's how this person is. The energy yeah. of that person. Yeah, yeah absolutely. 
So, okay, we've talked about a lot of stuff. Devi, can you bring us home talking about the free solution and uh, using of tapping? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, tapping is, like I said earlier, it's a very accessible. Anyone can do it. It just takes willingness and practice, right? It's very simple. So you tap on set points. You know, you can actually find information like I can't do it. This is a podcast, so I can't really show show it to you. Show. Yeah, exactly. But you can actually Google tapping. And the wonderful thing uh, about that is, you know, there are a bunch of uh, materials out there on YouTube just easily. There's also even an app right? Called Tapping Solution. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that you can uh, have. And these things actually work. Uh, it looks simple. It looks silly. You know, a lot of people just, you know, snicker and, ha oh, what is that person doing? You know, how silly. But mm. it works. one of them. Yeah. So. But it works. Yeah. It has works on, it has worked on millions of people. And, you know, uh, Alan can can talk more into this either today or next time. There have been a lot of research done to back this up. So, yeah, if you're having chronic pain, yeah, yeah tapping is one way to help you with how you think. Hmm. Right? Yeah. Because tapping is one of those ways. I think there there are very explainable reasons why we tap on certain parts of our body, on the point um, where there lies um, the important nerves that could help determine the rewiring of our neuron pathways. Oh, me! Listen, <laughs> listen. Hey, Ma, look at me using all these terms. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I hope I know what I'm talking about. Yeah, it's about. based on the meridian points as well, right? The meridian lines. Yeah, energetic lines. Yeah. Yeah. I think that ex that helps explain. I think for a lot of people, the the one of the first questions would be, how can something like that work in dealing with chronic pain? How can tapping work? Like uh, I was skeptical at first mm -hmm. as well, but yeah, I was like, okay, even if it does work, how how does it explain that tapping on certain parts of your body can help alleviate pain in our life? I've been using it myself on for times when I need. To calm down. To regulate. When I'm overwhelmed. Mm. Yeah, to regulate. Yeah, to when I feel like I'm emotionally unable to control myself the way I want to respond. Then I, when I can help it, um, when I have the brain space to like, okay, tap, I will do mm. it. I do it um, too. But, it's yeah. like we're yeah. not actually saying those things mm -hmm. because one, one thing that is important is that people don't feel like they're going into someone's office that feels that they're better than them. Mm. We, we are all in the same boat. We get dysregulated as well and we use the tools that we give to people mm. because we are all in the same thing. Ha having a white coat that, that gives us a sense of superiority is sometimes it's really detrimental to building a relationship and, and getting, getting people to feel safe, mm. right? Mm -hmm. But I think it's just one last thing. I think it's important to look at those patterns. Some people tend to be, it's a gross oversimplification, but some people are thinkers and some people are jumpers. Mm. Some people are going to be like, what? There's a manual to this tapping thing? I don't care. Just show me and I'll do it right now. And some people are like, 
wait, before I try, I want to know why it works, who invented it, the history <laughs> of the method, right? Mm. Okay, I'm just pointing at myself. <laughs> uh, a little bit more in disbelief, you know, but do we really need to know everything about it before we start trying? Because that's also one of the reasons that sometimes we don't make progress. Because we are stopping ourselves and we're in a pattern of disbelief. Right. Whereas mm. in reality, it's the doing that gets us the benefit, not because we've read a scientific paper about it, right? And I, I know I'm not judging people because I'm kind of the person that would go and read those papers first, right? Right. But I'll just quote one of my trauma trainers, right? He he said by the time he was using that thing, there was no one able to explain why it actually did what it did. But he couldn't care less because he was somebody who was re recovering from a lot of trauma, right? He has a score of nine out of 10. And he said, score of ace. the only way that I was an ace, aces, aces, yeah, but people yeah. wouldn't know because we haven't really talked about it that much, but nine out of 10 means you're very severely traumatized. Mm. And the only, he, he was a music player and the only way he could get himself to actually be comfortable enough to play on stage was to actually imbibe himself and self-medicate with uh, alcohol before he went on stage. Mm. And then when he actually did this tapping, he didn't need to do that anymore. And he was like, mm. I, I really don't know. And he, he's a therapist, right? So he would care about those things. But he's like, I don't care. Maybe I'll learn about it later. But right now, that's the only thing that gets me to play on stage without feeling overly anxious. Mm. So, you know what? I'm going to do it because I want to live the life that I want. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. See what works for you, right? Absolutely. Yeah, there's so many, yeah, there are so many um, modalities, steps, tools that we can use out there. See what works for you. And like Alan mentioned, more often than not, it, it usually takes more than one um, approach one step, one tool for you to see the difference in our life. Right, yeah. yeah. Food doesn't heal hunger forever, right? It heals hunger one time. <laughs> so same with a lot of the other things. Yeah. Yeah. We haven't talked about Wara as one of the free, no cost as well. Alan, you would like to yeah, yeah, talk about yeah. that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's wiring effect with reattach. Mm -hmm. So same, it's a, it's something that was invented by the same founder of reattach. Uh, reattach. And she made it available because she felt that it was needed when all the isolation happened and the lockdowns at the time of COVID, uh, COVID and all yeah. that. And so it can be really, really powerful. I don't know if it's still available online and if we can access it. Really, but if you if you want, you can uh, check on Google Wara wiring effect with reattach. W A R A. Right? Yeah. So also something that can be very useful. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So. How about yawning? <laughs> How about some yawning? Movement. Is yawning under movement? Yes. So, so there's so much more actually. What we're sharing here is you know is some parts some important parts that we felt that we needed to highlight and there's so much more and then of course this is a good segue for our next episode uh, which is going to be on expressive arts therapy 
right, Amy? Mm, yeah. Yeah. Because there's how we eat, there's how we sense, and then and then there's how we move. And today we talked think. about how we think. Yeah. And later on, how do we express? Mm. And then yeah, hopefully we would have um, offered or have something packaged for our listeners a more holistic mm. approach. Yeah. And dealing with and coping with the growing pains in life. <laughs> yeah. Right. So thank you so much, um, Alan and Devi, as always, for your insights. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. Hopefully, that has been useful for you. And if you haven't already, do tune in to our other episodes, uh, especially the ones where we talk about this about pain. So you will feel like you are getting a more complete package. Then just who goes and watch the first Star Wars and don't go back to watch number one and two, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so go tune into those episodes and stay tuned for our next one. Until the next episode, this is Liku Liku, Liku. Liku. out. out.